Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. Join me as we explore the Russian chronicles, myths, fairy tales, legends, works done by Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, among others. Don't go anywhere. James is on the air. Story Traditions with James on this Saturday afternoon, and this will be my permanent slot for the remaining of the semester, the remainder of the semester. Uh, today we will continue from where we left off on Sunday. We will focus in on the role of Christianity in early Russian civilization, Kievan Rus. So don't go anywhere. You know who's on the air. Keep it locked. We're going to listen to some music from that region of the world and then we will get into get into our discussion Thank you. 
heard some music from Bosnia. And we're back here on 90.5 WHRW Binghamton. You're in tune to Story Traditions with James. I am your host, James, and I will be with you for an hour this evening because we have special programming in store for you. We we will be broadcasting the ladies' basketball game at 2 p.m. So normally the show goes from 1 to 2.30, but today we will go from 1 to 2. And I want to just pick up from where we left off last Sunday. We looked at Christianity coming in from Constantinople, making its way into Kievan Rus. We defined Kievan Rus, where the term Rus, well, we speculate where the term Rus comes from. But in early Chris, um, Kievan Rus civilization, Russia or um the Greeks, I'm sorry, the Greeks were imposing Christianity on the Slavic people inhabiting Kievan Rus. But Christianity was in competition with other religions. So you can imagine the Khazars, the Turkic people, um, might have brought Islam into the region. And you had the Jews. Judy, uh, the Jews might have wanted their religion to become the national religion. So these three religions were in conflict for, you know, um, respect from the people. And ultimately, Christianity won out. And how did it come to be that Christianity became the religion of the Slavic people during this time period? Well, you have to look at Vladimir I. And Vladimir I, um, who was ruler of Kievan Rus at, at this point in time, sent out his his subordinates to find the best religion, and they were to come back with critiques of each religion. And the story I will share with you highlights this process of selecting Christianity as the religion for Kievan Rus. And here it is. It comes to us from the Chronicles, and it's titled, Vladimir I Christianizes Russia. Vladimir summoned together his boyars and the city elders and said to them, Behold, the, Bel- the Bulgarians came before me urging me to accept their religion. Then came the Germans and praised their own faith, and after them came the Jews. Finally, the Greeks appeared, criticizing all other faiths but con- commending their own, and they spoke at length telling the history of the whole world from its beginning. Their words were artful, and it was wondrous to listen and pleasant to hear them. They preached the existence of another world. Whoever adopts our religion and then dies shall arise and live forever, but whosoever embraces another faith shall be consumed with fire in the next world. 
What is your opinion on this subject? And what do you answer? The boyars and the elders replied, You know, O prince, that no man condemns his own possessions, but praises them instead. If you desire to make certain, you have servants at your disposal. Send them to inquire about the ritual of each and how he worships God. Their counsel pleased the prince and all the people, so that they chose good and wise men to the number of ten, and directed them to go first among the Bulgarians and inspect their faith. The emissaries went their way, and when they arrived at their destination, they beheld the graceful actions of the Bulgarians and their worship in the mosque. Then they returned to their own country. Vladimir then instructed them to go likewise among the Germans and examine their faith, and finally to visit the Greeks. They thus went into Germany, and after viewing the German ceremonial, they proceeded to Constantinople, where they appeared before the emperor. He inquired on what mission they had come, and they reported to him all that had occurred. When the emperor heard their words, he rejoiced and did them great honor on that very day. On the morrow, the emperor sent a message to the patriarch to inform him that a Russian delegation had arrived to examine the Greek faith and directed him to prepare the church and the clergy and to array himself in his sacerdotal robes so that the Russians might behold the glory of the God of the Greeks. When the patriarch received these commands, he bade the clergy assemble and they performed the customary rites. They burned incense and the choirs sang hymns. The emperor accompanied the Russians to the church and placed them in a wide space, calling their attention to the beauty of the edifice, the chanting and the offices of the archpriest and the ministry of the deacons, while he explained to them the worship of his God. The Russians were astonished and in their wonder praised the Greek ceremonial. Then the emperors Basil and Constantine invited the envoys to their presence and said, Go hence to your native country, and thus dismissed them with valuable presents and great honor. Thus they returned to their own country, and the prince called together his boyars and the elders. Vladimir then announced the return of the envoys who had been sent out and suggested that their report be heard. He thus commanded them to speak out before his vassals. The envoys reported, When we journeyed among the Bulgarians, we beheld how they worship in their temple, called a mosque, while they stand up ungirt. The Bulgarian bows, bows sit down, looks hither and thither like one possessed, and there is no happiness among them, but instead only sorrow and a dreadful stench. Their religion is not good. Then we went among the Germans and saw them performing many ceremonies in their temples, but we beheld no glory there. Then we went on to Greece, and the Greeks led us to the edifices where they worshipped their God, and we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth, for on earth there is no such splendor or such beauty, and we are at a loss how to describe it. We know only that God dwells there among men, 
and their services fairer than the ceremonies of other nations. For we cannot forget that beauty. Every man, after tasting something sweet, is afterward unwilling to accept that which is bitter, and therefore we cannot dwell longer here. Then the boyars spoke and said, If the Greek faith were evil, it would not have been adopted by your grandmother Olga, who was wiser than all other men. Vladimir then inquired where they should all accept baptism, and they replied that the decision rested with him. After a year had passed, in 988, Vladimir marched with an army force against Kherson, a Greek city, and the people of Kherson barricaded themselves therein. Vladimir halted at the farther, farther side of the city beside the bay, a bowshot from the town, and the inhabitants resisted energetically while Vladimir besieged the town. Eventually, however, they became exhausted, and Vladimir warned them that if they did not surrender, he would remain on the spot for three years. When they failed to heed his threat, Vladimir marshaled his troops and ordered the construction of an earthwork in the direction of the city. While this work was under construction, the inhabitants dug a tunnel under the city wall, stole the heaped-up earth and carried it into the city, where they piled it up in the center of the town. But the soldiers kept on building, and Vladimir persisted. Then a man of Kyrson, Anastasius by name, shot into the Russian camp an arrow on which he had written, There are springs behind you to the east, from which water flows in pipes. Dig down and cut them off. When Vladimir received this, this information, he raised his eyes to heaven and vowed that if this hope was realized, he would be baptized. He gave orders straightway to dig down above the pipes, and the water supply was thus cut off. The inhabitants were accordingly overcome by thirst and surrendered. Vladimir and his retinue entered the city, and he sent messages to the emperors Basil and Constantine, saying, Behold, I have captured your glorious city. I have also heard that you have an unwedded sister. Unless you give her to me to wife, I shall deal with your own city as I have with Kyrson. When the emperors heard this message, they were troubled and replied, It is not meet for Christians to give in marriage to pagans. If you are baptized, you shall have her to wife, inherit the kingdom of God, and be our companion in faith. Unless you do so, however, we cannot give you our sister in marriage. When Vladimir learned of this response, he directed the envoys of the emperors to report to the latter that he was willing to accept baptism, having already given some study to their religion and that the Greek faith and ritual, as described by the emissaries sent to examine it, had pleased him well. When the emperors heard this report, they rejoiced and persuaded their sister Anna to consent to the match. They then requested Vladimir to submit to baptism before they should send their sister to him. But Vladimir desired that the princess should herself bring priests to baptize him. The emperors complied with his request, 
and sent forth their sister, accompanied by some dignitaries and priests. Anna, however, departed with reluctance. It, it, it is as if I were setting out into captivity, she lamented. Bet better, much better, were it for me to die here. But her brothers protested. Through your agency, God turns the Russian land to re repentance, and you will relieve Greece from the danger of grievous war. Do you not see how much evil the Russians have already brought upon the Greeks? If you do not set out, they may bring on us the same misfortunes. It was thus that they overcame her hesitation only with great difficulty. The princess embarked upon a ship, and after tearfully embracing her kinfolk, her kinfolk, she set forth across the sea and arrived at Kirsten. The natives came forth to greet her and conducted her into the city, where they settled her in the palace. By divine agency, Vladimir was suffering at that moment from a disease of the eyes and could see nothing, being in great distress. The princess declared to him that if he desired to be relieved of this disease, he should be baptized with all speed, otherwise it could not be cured. When Vladimir heard his message, heard her message, he said, If this proves true, if this proves true, then of a surety is the God of the Christians great, and gave order that he should be baptized. The bishop of Kirsten, together with the princess's priests, after announcing the tidings, baptized Vladimir, and as the bishop laid his hand upon him, he straightway received his sight. Upon experiencing this miraculous cure, Vladimir glorified God, saying, I have now perceived the one true God. When his followers beheld this miracle, many of them were also baptized. Vladimir was baptized in the church of St. Basil, which stands at Kirsten upon a square in the center of the city, where the Kersonians trade. The palace of Vladimir stands beside this church to this day, and the palace of the princess is behind the altar. After this baptism, Vladimir took the princess in marriage. Those who do not know the truth say he was baptized in Kiev, while others assert this event took place in Valisiev, where still others mention other places. And when we return, we will discuss this story in, in detail. But um, there's some more to the story, and I'll finish up that portion of the story prior to our discussion. Keep it locked. You're in tune to 90.5 WHRW Binghamton. Feel free to give me a call. The number here is 777 um, you're always welcome to call in. Thank you. 
to Vladimir baptizes or Christianizes Russia. We will finish up the story. Hereupon, Vladimir took the princess and Anastasius and the priests of Kyrgyzstan together with the relics of St. Clement and of Phobos, his discipline, and selected also sacred vessels and images for the service. In Kyrgyzstan, he thus founded a church on the mound which had been heaped up in the midst of the city with the earth removed from his embankment. This church is standing at the present day. Vladimir also found and appropriated two bronze statues and four bronze horses, which now stand behind the church of the Holy Virgin, and which the ignorant think are made of marble. As a wedding present for the princess, he gave Kyrgyzstan over to the Greeks again, and then departed for Kiev. When the prince arrived at his capital, he directed that the idols should be overthrown, and that some should be cut out, cut to pieces, and others burned with fire. He thus ordered the perum should be bound to a horse's tail and dragged along Borichev to the river. He appointed twelve men to beat the idol with sticks, not because he thought the wood was sensitive, but to affront the demon who had deceived him in this guise, that he might receive chastisement at the hands of men. Great art thou, O Lord, and marvelous are thy works. Yesterday he was honored of men, but today held in derision. While the idol was being dragged along the stream to the Dnieper, the unbelievers wept over it, for they had not yet received holy baptism. After they had thus dragged the idol along, they cast it into the Dnieper. But Vladimir had given, <coughs> excuse me, had given this injunction: If it halts anywhere, then push it out from the bank until it goes over the falls. Then let it loose. His command was duly obeyed. When the men let the idol go, and it passed through the falls, the wind cast it out on the bank, which since that time has been called Perun's Bank, a name that it bears to this very day. Thereafter, Vladimir sent heralds throughout the whole city to proclaim that if any inhabitant, rich or poor, did not betake himself to the river, 
he would risk the prince's displeasure. When the people heard these words, they wept for joy and exclaimed in their enthusiasm, If there... If this were not good, the prince and his boyars would not have accepted it. Yay! On the morrow, the prince went forth to the Dinibur with the priests of the princess and those of Kirsten, and a countless multitude assembled. They all went into the water. Some stood up to their necks, others to their breasts, the younger near, near the bank, some of them holding children in their arms, while the adults waited farther out. The priests stood by and offered prayers. There was joy in heaven and upon earth to behold so many souls saved. But the devil groaned, lamenting, Woe! Woe is me! How? How am I driven out hence? For I thought to have my dwelling place here, since the apostolic teachings do not abide in this land, nor, nor did this people know God. But, but I rejoiced in the service they rendered unto me. But now, now I am vanquished by the ignorant, not by apostles and mortals or martyrs. And my reign in these regions is at, at an end. When the people were baptized, they returned each to his own abode, Vladimir, Rejoicing that he and his subjects now knew God himself, looked up to heaven and said, O God, what has created heaven and earth? Look down, I beseech thee, on this thy new people, and grant them, O Lord, to know thee as the true God, just as the other Christian nations have known thee. Confirm in them the true and unalterable faith, and aid me, O Lord against the hostile adversary, so that hoping in thee and in thy might, I may overcome his malice. Having spoken thus, he ordained that churches should be built and established where pagan idols had previously stood. He thus founded the church of St. Basil on the hill, where the idol of Perun and the other images had been set and where the prince and the people had offered their sacrifices. He began to found churches and to assign priests throughout the cities and to invite the people to accept baptism in all the cities and towns. He took the children of the best families and sent them to schools for instruction in book learning. The mothers of these children wept bitterly over them, for they were not yet strong in faith, but mourned as for the dead. When these children were assigned for study, there was thus fulfilled in the Russian land the prophecy which says, In those days the deaf shall hear words of Scripture, and the voice of the stammerers shall be made plain. Isaiah twenty nine eighteen thirty two four. For these persons had not ere these this heard words of Scripture and now heard them only by the act of God. For in his mercy the Lord took pity upon them, even as the prophet said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Exodus thirty-three nineteen. And that's the story of Vladimir Bapt- Christianizes Russia. It's an interesting story, but nonetheless, 
It is a story found in the Chronicles which explains how Christianity arrived and was well respected and accepted by the Russian uh, people or the Slavic people at that time. Now what's interesting to note is how paganism was to be expulsed. I'm looking for the passage right now. The expulsion of paganism, was it a full and thorough expulsion of paganism? That is questionable. In fact, during my last show, I discussed the, the notion of dual faith that persists in Russian society today. While some people strongly are want to believe in Christianity, there's still this pagan aspect that still re remains in, in, in their beliefs today. And this dual faith. So it's not one or the other, but a mixture, a conflict between the two. And the conflict was present in this story, but the conflict was not fully resolved. Okay, this conflict of Christianity and paganism was not fully resolved. And here's why. I will reread the passage for you. This is when Prince, uh, Prince Vladimir returns to his capital city, Kiev, and attempts to remove all remnants of paganism. So, when the prince arrived at his capital, he directed that the idols should be overthrown and that some should be cut to pieces and others burnt with fire. He thus ordered that Perun should be bound to a horse's tail and dragged along Borichev to the river. He appointed twelve men to beat the idol with sticks, not because he thought the wood was sensitive, but to affront the demon who had deceived him, who had deceived man in this guise, that he might receive chastisement at the hands of men. Great art thou, O Lord, and marvelous are thy works. Yesterday he was honored of men, but today held in derision. While the idol was being dragged along the stream to the Dnieper, the unbelievers wept over it, for they had not yet received holy baptism. After they had thus dragged the idol along, they cast it into the Dnieper. But Vladimir had given this injunction. Ha! Huh. Okay, take note. But Vladimir... Okay, so the idols were on their way to be cast into the Dnieper, but Vladimir had given this injunction. If it halts anywhere... Then push it out from the bank until it goes over the, the falls. Then let it loose. Okay, notice this injunction. If it halts anywhere, then push it out from the bank until it goes over the falls. Then let it loose. So, Vladimir himself isn't totally eliminating paganism. He is not seeing. He is not visually, physically, spiritually Seeing the expulsion of paganism, he's not sure. He's not giving a, a complete um, treatment of its expulsion. So if it halts anywhere, then push it out from the bank until it goes over the falls, then let it loose. Where is it going? He's not sure where paganism is going. He is not thoroughly removing paganism from the society. And this is all um, being analyzed based on the symbols that are present in this passage. So his command was duly obeyed. When the men let the idol go and it passed through the falls, the wind cast it out on the bank, which 
since that time has been called Perun's Bank, a name that it bears to this very day. So essentially, paganism or the idols were not fully destroyed. They were cast into a bank, and the wind, okay, the wind cast it out on the bank. So the the idols went where the, the wind went. So Vladimir did not totally remove paganism from the society, and symbolically speaking. Instead, it went where the wind blew. And this symbolizes or represents a um a clear a it it represents a clear um the a clear notion that paganism was not thoroughly removed neither by the prince nor by the people but paganism was driven into a direct was driven somewhere and then thereafter taken where in the direction of the wind so this ties in well with why we see today um, this dual faith present among the Russians. The, the paganism is still there in, 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 in light of Christianity. Okay? Another reason why this dual faith may still exist was something I mentioned last week about language and the role language plays in bringing a new culture. Language carries culture. Remember that. It carries culture. When you speak another language, you're essentially internalizing a culture so that when you articulate um, a sentence in another language, you have to be able to put together a sentence so that someone else understands it. And in order for you to do that, you must understand that individual's culture. So when you internalize someone else's language, you essentially internalize, some, you, you essentially internalize someone else's culture. Now... Christianity was brought to the Russians. From whom? From the Greeks. So everything was taught in the Greek language. Uh, I'm sorry. Everything was translated into the Russian language, the Cyrillic language. Remember, Cyril and Methodius brought the Russian alphabet to the Slavic people. And everything Greek was translated into their new language. However... Everything came from another culture and was brought into another culture. The Russians never learned Greek to an extent where they can directly internalize Christianity. Instead, it was passed through a middleman, which was the Cyrillic uh, language. So that may be another reason why there's this hesitation to fully accept um, Christianity as their faith. And we have this dual... Um, this dual faith present to this day in, in, in among Russians. So keep it locked. Story Traditions with James continues after a few songs. We're looking at early Russia, Kiev, and the Christianization of Kiev before we mo- move along into the epics. What can we learn from the epics? So we're looking at things we can learn from the Chronicles, the role of Christianity, how Christianity uh, was brought to Russian civilization. The Chronicles also detail for us key events that took place in Russia and how these key events, once we understand these key events, we can then better analyze Russian literature and how 
um, Russian literature is, is molded based on these key events that took place. So keep it locked. You're in tune to 90.5 WHRW Binghamton. The show continues for an additional 20 minutes uh, for the next 20 minutes. And then it concludes at 2 p.m. today as we have to broadcast the women's basketball game. So keep it locked. I'll be back with some more.
And you were just listening to liturgical music from the Russian cathedral. Title of the track was um, Exalt in the Lord. A good way to conclude our discussion on the role of Christianity in early Kievan civilization. I will play one more track and then we will return with another motif, another topic of discussion in Russian literature and in Russian civilization, the fratricidal feuds that took place between the princes. So keep it locked. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. I'm back. And now we turn our attention to another motif found in Russian, in the Chronicles, early Russian literature, early Russian civilization, society, the, the, the feuding between the princes. So once a, a, a um, head prince pass, passes away, his sons would fight amongst each other for the throne. And that was a problem that weakened the Russian civilization that allowed an easy uh, siege, siege by the Mongols. The Mongols walked right in. The Golden Horde walked right into Kiev and Rus and took it over because of this infighting. And you know, the the the, the saying "United we stand, divided we fall" is probably a definitive statement for early Kievan Rus. And the next story I will read to you focuses heavily on that. The theme in this story is this fratricidal feuding. It's titled The Blinding of Vasilko. Satan now incited certain men to report to David, son of Igor, that Vladimir was conspiring with Vasilko. And I want to point out that Vladimir is not this, the Vladimir in this text is not the same as Vladimir I, the head prince of Kievan Rus. This is um, sons, brothers fighting amongst each other. So Satan now incited certain men to report to David, son of Igor, that Vladimir was conspiring with Vasilko against Tsvyotopolk and against himself. David gave credence to their false words and endeavored to stir up Stavitopolk against Vasilko, saying, you k- Who killed your brother? Yaropolk? Now he plots against me and against you and has conspired with Vladimir. Take thought for your own head. Vyatopolk was thus perturbed and wondered whether these allegations were true or false. He was uncertain and replied to David, If you speak all right, may God be your witness. But if you speak from motives of jealousy only, 
God will punish you for it. Viatopolk was concerned for his brother and himself and wondered whether the rumor was true. He finally believed David, who thus deceived Viatopolk. And the two of them set out to plot against Vasilko. Now Vasilko and Vladimir were ignorant of this fact. David remarked, however, that if he and Viatopolk did not seize Vasilko, neither of them could be sure of the, dom- the domains they then held, and Viatopolk believed him. Vasilko arrived on November 4th, crossed over to Dovabici, and went to make his reverence to St. Michael in the monastery, where he also supped. He pitched his, pan- his camp on the Ruditsa. At evening, he returned to his camp. When it was morning, Vyatopolk urged him by messenger not to depart before his name day. Vasilko refused, urging that he could not wait that long, or there would be disorder in his domain. Then David begged him not to depart, but rather to obey his elder kinsman. Vasilko, however, was still reluctant to comply. Then David remarked to Vyatopolk, See, he sets no store by you, though he is in your power. If he departs to his domain, you shall see whether he does not seize your cities of Turov or Pinsk and other towns which belong to you. Then you will perhaps remember my words. Call the men at once and take him prisoner, then deliver him over to me. Tviatopolk followed his advice and sent word to Vasilko, saying, If you are unwilling to remain until my name day, at least come and embrace me now, and then we shall meet with David. Vasilko promised to go and did not perceive the treachery which David was planning against him. Vasilko thus mounted his horse and rode off. One of his servants then met him, met him and urged him not to go, because the princes were plotting to take him prisoner. But Vasilko heeded him not. As he thought to himself, how can they intend to take me prisoner? They joined me in the oath that if any one of us should attack another, the Holy Cross and all of us should be against him. Having thus reflected, he crossed himself and said, God's will be done. He thus rode with a small escort to the prince's palace. Vyatopol came out to meet him, and they went into the hall. David entered, and all sat down. Thus Tviatopolk begged Vasilko to remain until the day of St. Michael, November 8th. Vasilko replied, I cannot remain, kinsman. I have already ordered my camp to move forward. David sat silent as if struck dumb, till Tviatopolk invited Vasilko to breakfast with them, and Vasilko accepted. Then Vyatopolk said, Remain seated here a moment while I go out to make certain dispositions. He thus went out, leaving David, with, leaving David and Vasilko alone together. Vasilko tried to open a conversation with David, but there was no voice nor hearing in him, for he was afraid and had treachery in his heart. After he had sat a while, he inquired where his kinsman was. The answer 
was given that he was standing in the vestibule. David then rose and asked Vasilko to remain seated while he went in search of Beatapolk. He thus stood up and went thence. When David had thus gone out, others seized upon Vasilko and fettered him with double fetters, setting guards over him by night. This treachery took place on November 5th. In the morning, Vyatapolk assembled the boyars and the men of Kiev and informed them of what David had told him, to the effect that Vasilko had been responsible for his brother's death, was plotting with Vladimir against him, and intended to kill him and seize his cities. The boyars and the populace replied, It behooves you, O prince, to protect your own life. If David spoke aright, then Vasilko suffer the penalty. If David had spoken falsely, let him suffer the vengeance of God and answer before God. When the abbots heard of the circumstances, they interceded with Vyatapolk in Vasilko's behalf. But he protested that it was all David's affair. When David heard of all this, he urged that Vasilko should be blinded, on the ground that if but Vietapolk did nothing and released Vasilko, neither he himself nor Vyatapolk would be able to retain their thrones much longer. Vyatapolk was in favor of releasing him, but David kept close watch over him and would not consent. During the night, they thus took Vasilko to Bulgorod, which is a small town, ten versts from Kiev. They transported him, fettered in a cart, and after removing him from the vehicle, they led him into a small house. As he sat there, Vasilko saw a torque, sharpening a knife, and then, then, comprehended that they intended blinding him. He cried out to God with loud weeping and groaning. Then came the, then came the em- emissaries of Vyatapolk and David, Snovid, the son of Iksek, the squire of Vyatapolk, and Dmitri, David's squire, and they laid a rug upon the floor. After they had spread it, they seized Vasilko and endeavored to overthrow him. He offered a violent resistance so that they could not throw him. Then others came and cast him down. They bound him and laid upon his chest a slab taken from the hearth. Then Snavi, the son of Isek, sat at once, sat at one end and Dmitri at the other. They still could not hold him down. Then two other men came and after taking a second slab from the hearth, they too sat upon him and weighed upon him so heavily that his chest cracked. Then a torque, Berendi by name, a shepherd of Vyatapolk, came upon him with his knife, and though intending to strike him in the eye, missed the eye entirely and cut his face. This scar Vasilko bears to this day. Afterward, however, he struck him in one eye and took out the pupil, and then in the other eye, and also removed the pupil of the latter. At that moment, Vasilko lay as if dead. They raised him in the rug, laid him fainting on the wagon, and carried him off to Vladimir. Where, While he was being thus transported, they happened to halt with him at a marketplace after they had crossed the bridge at the town of Sviden. They took off his bloody shirt and gave it to the priest's wife to wash. After she had washed it, the woman put it on him while the others were eating, and she began to weep, for he was as if dead. 
He heard her weeping and inquired where he was. They replied that the town was Sweden. He then begged for water. They gave him some, and after he had drunk the water, full consciousness returned to him and remembered what had occurred. And feeling his shirt, he lamented, Why did you take it from me? I had rather have met my death and stood before God in this bloody shirt. When they had eaten, they rode on swiftly in the cart with him and over a rough road, for it was then the month of Gruden, called November. They arrived with him at Vladimir's on the sixth day. day. David accompanied them and behaved as if he had captured some prize. They quartered Vasilko in the Vakiv palace and placed over him a guard of thirty men, as well as two servants of the prince named Ulan and Kolchko. And ladies and gentlemen, my show is at an end at this point. I now turn it over to um, BU Sports Events. You will, we will go right into the uh, women's basketball game here on WHRW Binghamton. Thank you for your time. I'll be back next week to discuss this story and the motifs present. <laughs>